Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Parkies Podcast. Um, before we get started, I hope everyone's staying safe and staying healthy through this pandemic. Um, we're going to get through it. We will reach the lights at the end of the tunnel. Um, it's there. You know, some states are talking about reopening or already taking steps to reopen. Um, I know Pennsylvania, my home has, so that's a positive. Um, it's getting there. We are getting there. So just stay optimistic, stay happy, and uh, let's focus on the happy thoughts. Um, and also thank you to everyone who is taking time to listen to this podcast and support me and support this podcast in general. Um, the amount of support and feedback that I've gotten on this thing has been overwhelmingly positive and I can't thank you all enough. So I hope these episodes kind of give you something to do or some some background noise or something to help you pass the time and also give you some entertainment um, while you stay home and stay safe. And um, I'm going to keep putting out as much content as I can on this. I do have quite a few awesome people lined up to chat with me on some park experiences that uh, I cannot wait to uh, dive into and share with you all. But um, those are for the near future episodes and upcoming uh, content. But as of today, uh, today we're on episode three and I have my friend Paul Fodder with me to chat about his park experiences. Um, Paul and I met in my first summer in Glacier National Park in 2018 as he was a red bus driver or a jammer as we like to call him. Um, That's the name that we have for those those employees in Glacier, the tour bus drivers. And we're going to talk about that in this podcast. We also talk about Paul's Um, outdoor activity experiences, and also his journey into the park service role that he's in now or going back for as a a park service employee. And um, it's really interesting stuff. Um, Paul's got a great passion for, you know, how we got into these roles and how we got into the area that he is in now. And I can't wait for you all to hear it. He he's a really interesting guy. Um, I have never heard anyone talk to themselves either in third person or reference themselves in third person so paul's got that attribute and uh he's he's quite a trip but uh he's a great guy he's got great experience and uh i cannot wait to share what we have um, lined up for you so without further ado let's welcome my buddy paul All all right paul you there yeah awesome well Paul, welcome. Thank you for uh, for reaching out to me to do this thing. You were actually one of the uh, the top people I had in mind to kind of jump on an episode with me because you got quite a bit of experience, not only from what I've heard in Glacier, but like just in your background in general. So I'm really excited to to hear about that. Yeah, no, I'm real stoked to be here talking to you. Thanks for lining it up quickly. Uh, I move into my car tomorrow. So uh Wi-Fi is no longer going to be a consistent thing for me. Oh man, it's, you're not. You're hopefully you're not planning that long term, are you? It'll most likely be for the whole summer. Oh my gosh, really, man? Yeah, uh, just the housing scenario uh, for park service housing here. They're only putting one person in each housing unit, oh, and wow. so for like a housing unit that would normally hold three people. They're only going to put one person in. Wow. Um, and my start date has been delayed by probably a month to a month and a half at this point. Jeez. So it's, and so by the time I get brought on, there's not going to be any housing left. And so, yeah, just going to be living out of my car and yeah, just doing that and 
you know, going to try and save money doing that. Um, Cause especially if I'm not working till the end of June, it'll be nice to not pay rent if I don't have a job. Yeah. That'll be at least a little more beneficial, but I mean, I guess it's just the kind of change to live with um, because of this whole pandemic thing. Yeah, no, it's certainly weird. Um, I mean, thankfully, I've lived in my car before for like a month on a road trip. This would be a little different because I'm not traveling around and I'm just, you know, staying put in one town. Right. But it's Montana. It's kind of nice because we're already beginning where I've already started our phase one of the reopening. Um, Okay. we had the least number, the only state that had less number of cases than us, I believe, was Alaska. Like, I think now we still have less than 500 confirmed uh, COVID 19 cases in the state of Montana. And so, and our bell curve's already way down. So, it's, we're, we're in a good spot. Um, we're still, everyone's still social distancing. And again, it's only phase one. So, it's not like wide open. But I don't know, at least for us, there's light at the end of the tunnel. But, we're just kind of crossing our fingers that, you know, with tourism being the number one thing in the Flathead Valley and Glacier that, you mm-hmm. know, as that ramps up, it doesn't get brought back into the valley and it spikes again. Yeah, it's going to be, I've just thought about this for multiple times and also talking to other people that I keep in touch with. Uh, Joe, especially, I talk to him uh, regularly about, you know, what the, uh, summer is going to look like um, even though I'm not going back but it's just it's just going to be a whole different uh, operation amongst the concessionaires tourist attractions um, like any aspect of travel and tourism in that area itself is just going to be um, just kind of unknown at this point yeah it, it'll be interesting to see like I know the restaurants in Glacier this summer they're going to be doing takeout only so I get the oh, many so Glac- confirmed I believe so yeah um at least that's that's what I've been hearing from friends that work in concessions um okay. like I haven't heard any official word from park service or anything but that wow. kind of sounds and makes sense that that's what they're going to be doing um but I think the biggest hit a lot of the concessions are going to see is like I don't know if they're going to have any j1 employees working for them this summer because i can't see them allowing that international travel unless they do like a a 14-day quarantine or something when they arrive and then they start working but uh, it could be interesting to see how that plays out with staffing um, because that's a huge portion of the employment in the parks oh my gosh yeah um from what from what joe told me i think it was um confirmed that they are suspending the uh, J1 program this summer, at least in Glacier. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's going to make a just a huge impact on staffing. But also at the same time, if they're just doing like – because, you know, like a lot of staffing – I know a lot of J1s go towards like housekeeping and dining, uh, food, and, yeah. food and beverage. So if they're doing takeout uh, only in these restaurants, I think – I, I, maybe like that demand will kind of offset. I don't know how it's, how it's going to look. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately I think it's just going to come down to how busy we actually are and how right. many people are going to visit. Like I know earlier this week, the Montana government released that they're encouraging people to not travel to Montana right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and like we have a more t- a mandatory 14 day quarantine for out of state travelers as well right now. So like anyone coming in the state should be, quarantine themselves for 14 days before going about and doing stuff 
But yeah, like just it'll be summer. Like I think ultimately it just comes down to how busy we're going to be. And there's just no way to know that. Like we're absolutely clueless. Like it could be a summer where there's barely any visitors to the park and it's just locals and folks from Montana or, you know, could range all the way up to fairly normal. Yeah. I mean, in my mind, I doubt like tourism, like levels and visitation numbers are going to be anywhat near normal this summer. But uh, yeah, you made a, you made a good point. It's uh, for like the locals and the employees living in the areas and working there. I mean, it's going to be um, somewhat relaxing if like the numbers of visitation are down um, kind of more of the parks themselves in a way. Yeah, for sure. And it's, yeah, like we certainly won't be normal um, with that scale there. But it, I think there's also this conception that like the national parks, you're like in the wilderness and you're away from people. So there could be folks that are like, well, what's the big deal? I'm going to the wilderness. In reality, you're right. just being funneled in um, into visitor centers and busy trailheads. And like in Glacier, especially, they um like when they started laying people off due to the virus because businesses were shutting down all of a sudden the trailheads we're seeing like 50 to 100 cars in the winter which is insane wow okay and so yeah it was super busy like everyone was just walking or cross-country skiing up going to the sun road past like the gate closure or just hanging out at the lodge or even you know heading out the trailhead the sperry trailhead there to go for a hike or ski and so yeah like it got which is why they had to shut it down um a really funny thing that i saw they had to put chains over the hand sanitizers in the pit toilets (laughs) oh my god hand sanitizer so they had to chain it to the wall i mean that makes sense i mean people trying to steal that hand sanitizer it's a it's a hot commodity so yeah (laughs) man that's i I mean i never would have thought of that but it just makes total sense now that you say it but, um, yeah, yeah, I I cracked up when I saw it. <laughs> um, and that, that's another thing, too. Like, I mean, I think a lot of people, I mean, for those who worked in Glacier, they most likely know this, but for other people that haven't worked in Glacier or haven't been there at all, like, most people don't realize that the park is still open during the winter for, like, those winter activities, cross-country skiing and whatnot. It's not just like it's, you know, you know, it's basically deserted in the winter compared to the summer, but that, that stuff is still an option in the winter. Yeah, it totally is. Uh, there, I mean, there's a lot of people that go into the park in the winter. Um, the more common area is like the Lake McDonald area because you can just go for a hike, snowshoe, cross-country ski up going to the Sun Road. Um, for people mm-hmm. who go backcountry skiing, there's options off the trails there. And then even folks that just come to see Lake McDonald. So people do still recreate. It's mainly just locals. Uh, you're occasionally... Right occasionally i'll see a car roll through that's you know it's a rental or out of state um and they they look like they're tourists uh, there's plenty of out of state places seasonal workers here but yeah no it's the park's different in winter there's also some stuff on the east side people do go backcountry skiing over there as well okay. uh, it's yeah, it, it really feels like wilderness, um, and which you can get that in the summer, but in the wintertime, it's, you know, you see one other group of people in the winter, and it's a busy day. 
Right. Yeah. That makes um, sense. Yeah. Which, which is really nice. Cause you're out there. Like we, I got real lucky with a couple buddies. We went up to avalanche Lake just before the park closed in like March and spent a couple nights camping and skiing up by avalanche Lake. Oh, wow. And, and they really, yeah, really cool spot. And then, but yeah, like we were at avalanche Lake, which is, you know, your typical tourist trap, you get up there and there's like mm-hmm. over a hundred people at the shore of the lake and yeah. there without a soul. And it was so amazing, especially that was, you know, the lake I worked at last summer. And so to have yeah. that, like all to yourself is like, Oh, like this place is really cool. And especially like, you know, in March, every, like all the waterfalls around are still frozen. So it was really cool. Cause it was all painted white and you had these hundreds of feet tall waterfalls, like at the back of the lake. Oh man. That's yeah. I, um, yeah. That place is just a, like a, a tourist, like nightmare death trap parking nightmare in itself during the summer. <laughs> uh huh. But I mean, I got to go up there because I didn't get a chance to hike it last summer or not, not uh, my first summer in 2018. I, I didn't get a chance to get over there and hike it. But uh, being over at Lake McDonald and helping open up uh, this past summer in 2019, I got a chance to go out there with a few employees. And it is super peaceful back there when there's not many people on that trail or at that shore to begin with. Yeah, no, it's I, the Avalanche Lake hike. It, it can get a bad rap from people like the locals here like you know people who have been here for many years just because it is so busy but it really yeah. is a really awesome trail and it's beautiful up there um like there, there's a reason it's popular like it's it's an awesome yeah. hike and you know it's, i think it's one of the best bang for your buck hikes in glacier for sure but yeah along with that comes the traffic and the traffic jams and all all sorts of chaos yeah absolutely absolutely so, um, so yeah, why don't we just, uh, I sent you the, over like the outline for kind of just this podcast. Of course, we'll just see where it goes. And like, I just want to hear like all of your experience and, uh, pertains to like what we, uh, kind of originally discussed, but, uh, why don't we just start out with, uh, like a background of Paul, like, you know, where you're from, how your outdoor passion came to be and all that jazz. Yeah. So who am I? Well, I grew up in Maine, uh, back in the Northeast and, like lived in a probably a medium-sized town there it's probably like six or seven thousand people so like not big but not small and just growing up was outdoors all the time um like i had awesome parents they got us outside as much as they could and like looking back i'm like super grateful for that but i grew up in fishing hiking camping hunting i mean you name it like we were doing outside and every year would go camping with a couple families that I was really good friends with and just like spend a week to a week and a half, just like out of state park, hanging out, having a good time outdoors. And so that was always a blast. And then as far as like my passion more for like the mountains and getting out there, I didn't really even hit that till I was about in college, which I went to college out in Ohio which is not the most mountainous state, if you didn't know. <laughs> I definitely know that. <laughs> yeah. All I know is the, uh, the turnpike. That's about it. Yeah, and this was like southwestern Ohio, where it's literally just cornfields and soy fields and tornadoes. Yeah. Uh, not, not, like, not, not a fun place to live if you're someone who likes being outside. Um, I certainly was ready to be out of there when that time came. But during that time, 
like one of the times I was back home visiting and my brother's home and like we went and hiked Saddleback Mountain, which is a ski resort in Maine, but there's a trail that goes up the backside of it. And like getting up onto that summit, like really like it opened my mind. I was like, oh, this is really cool. Like you can just go hike and climb mountains. And I absolutely loved it. And then from then I was hooked. So then I started looking at what I could do. So I was like, all right, for to be a, a tall mountain in Maine is over 4,000 feet. Uh, keep in mind, most of the bases are around like sea level, but still not as like rugged as out West. But then I was like, all right, cool. I'm going to hike all the 4,000 foot peaks in Maine. And so I started, that was my first project. And then I did like the presidential traverse in New Hampshire, which is like, it's a 20 mile day with like eight or nine peaks. It's like, you know, it, it's a really good starter for people who can like do longer days or peak bag. And that really opened my eyes like, okay, you can do a lot of stuff. You can do big days. And then from there, when I, before I finished up college, I came out to Montana. And then that was my first summer out here is when I was just washing dishes at the Lake McDonald Lodge and absolutely fell in love with the area. Um, and yeah, I've been working in Glacier, Never Glacier National Park ever since I started back in 2016. And this summer is going to be my fifth summer working there now. So it's been pretty crazy. I'm a year round resident of the area, the Northwest area of Montana, Flathead Valley in the winter, um, which is like 45 minutes from the park. And then I live in the park in the summer. Yeah, that's awesome, man. I remember um, now as far as like your, I think I remember you telling me about your degree before, but like, what did, what did you originally go to college for during this time? Yeah. So I went to school and got my degree in chemistry education. And so my original plan was to be a high school teacher. And I was thinking of trying to do like some outdoor education or maybe work in a park or something like in my summers. But then like the deeper into like that degree I got, I really began to realize like, no, I just want to go work outside and do outdoor work. And so when, so I decided I was, I looked into switching degrees, but I was just going to add on too much schooling because I didn't want to pay for the extra, like five to six years of schooling just for an undergrad degree. And Mm -hmm. so I decided to just finish my degree. It was kind of related because science education works for outdoor ed. And it was right out of college was when I got my, for, had my first season uh, being a tour guide in Glacier National Park. I was driving the red buses. And so I was, yeah, able to just start pursuing outdoor work that way. And it's worked out um, for me. Spent a couple of years driving the buses and now, I spent last season was my first season uh, working with the National Park Service, and I'll hopefully will be this season. Um, <laughs> still not 100 yeah. percent confirmation on that, um, right. but you know it's they're just in the best we can, and you know this summer should be my second summer uh, working with the Park Service in Glacier. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, I remember it was definitely uh, definitely different when I like I got to talk to you about your. Um, experience or like what you were getting into as far as uh going to the park service last summer compared to being a jammer but um so between so basically it's uh unless i didn't miss any you played a role as a dishwasher a jammer and 
now a park service employee. Um, was there anything specific, like at the time that you were choosing those roles that like influenced your decision to um, like take those jobs or like go into that specific job? Like I, I figured like um, dishwashing is kind of like entry level. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I kind of figured that, but what about like, you know, being a jammer and uh, as, that's what the uh, red bus drivers are for those who, um, don't know what we're talking about. Jammers in Galatia National Park are the red bus drivers who get the tours and um, really kind of sell the park to thousands of tourists every year. Um, but yeah, like what kind of led you to the the jammer aspect and then the eventually the um, the park service role? Yeah, so all, all along this whole, whole timeline, I wanted to work for the National Park Service and was like, researching and applying to park service jobs and then so I took my first job as a dishwasher and that was just because I wanted to try living out west so I was like well I was between semesters of college I was like I can wash dishes for three months like easy so took that job came out here and then while I was a dishwasher I learned about the red buses um, and at that, I also spent that summer washing dishes I volunteered with the National Park Service uh, doing research on mountain goats bighorn sheep and pika uh, completing oh, wow. survey okay. for them and so i just go out into the field to survey sites and complete the surveys and bring back and that's data that's being used for like actual studies that they're doing amongst the species in the park um so that was kind of like my true start with the park service was uh, some volunteer work back in 2016 and then it was that summer i learned about the red buses and I knew I wanted to do some outdoor education and being a tour guide, you get to bring people out and teach them about the park and all the different aspects of that. So I was like, cool, that would be a really sweet, like out of college job. That's going to get me a little bit into the career field I want to be in, but also be a really fun job. And so like, and I knew a couple of red bus drivers. So I talked to them, you know, went to the whole application process, got hired on as a red bus driver. And so did it that first season. Um, and then the next season I was trying to move up to park service. Um, and I actually was offered a job at, with the national park service, but it was out at Fort Laramie in Wyoming, which is a, mm. like a, one of the historical monuments. And, but it was just like middle of nowhere like nothing around and I was just like well I can do this job that would further my career and get me in with the park service which is where I want to be and then I could use that to transfer out to you know a more ideal park as a, so my option is that or go back to Glacier and drive the red buses I knew I already loved Glacier I knew the red bus driving was a great gig and I decided in like Glacier was recreationally a way better, a more enjoyable spot for me. So I decided to actually turn down a job in the National Park Service um, and go back to Glacier and drive red buses. And so I did that again. And oh, I just remembered there actually was another time I turned down a park service gig when I was still in college one summer. I was actually offered an internship with Zion National Park to be in an oh wow. Uh, intern as an interpretive ranger and that was i think that was between my freshman and sophomore year like very early on where i was still like yes i want to work in a school and i already had a summer job working as a paraprofessional in a classroom for the summer 
And so I turned down the park service job because I was like, well, this job in an actual school is going to be more applicable to what I want to do. And for years, I was like, man, I hope that wasn't my one shot. Because if it was and I turned it down, like, that's going to suck. But yeah. And so did the two years driving red buses. And then last season, uh, 2019, I was offered the ranger position um, at Trail of Cedars in Avalanche Lake. The technical position term is a visitor services assistant. And yeah, that it took me about three years and about 75 applications out to various national park service jobs to land that job. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That was one of my other questions too. It was like, you know, what, um, what kind of that process was as far as applying for park service, like a park service job. From what I understand, at least just talking to you, it was, um, it's quite, it's quite difficult. Like it's, uh, is there like any specific, um, like just, I mean, speaking to people that, you know, maybe, looking for looking to get into a role with the park service either an entry-level role or like eventually establish a career or you know move up in the ranks of a uh, a park service job you know what would kind of your advice or direction be as far as you know applying what experience they're kind of looking for just some kind of insight that uh you know for those that are interested in that to kind of level on yeah, so, I mean, basically, if you are interested in working in the National Park Service, the, you need to familiarize yourself with usajobs.gov. Uh, that's the website where all jobs for the federal government are posted. And so that's where all National Park Service jobs are being posted. This is not the concessions work. This is specifically, like, to work for the National Park Service. And so it's anyone you talk to hates usa jobs if they've used it it's not <laughs> it's not great it's not ideal but it's the system we got so you got to work with it and so you, you like you upload your resume and what makes a federal government resume different than any other resume is for the federal government they want you to include every little detail so the whole keep your resume to one page rule you throw that out the window i think my resume is almost 10 pages it's insanely long because you you want every they want every little detail on it so you just right. on there and so you upload that and then there's a questionnaire you fill out and then the questionnaire sorts all the resumes and you know you got to beat the computer and then you if the computer selects your application and your resume then a human sees your resume so if the computer filters you out a human never even sees like your whole application file and so it's a game of beating the computer system, getting to a human, then you have to get the human to like you enough to call and select you. Um, and so it, it's a process, it's tough. Uh, these jobs, they're only posted for about a day or two at a time because they only open it to so many applicants or they'll put a time limit on it. And once the, that applicant is filled, it shuts down at like midnight that night. And like, that's, there's some job postings that have been up for 24 hours. And like, there's even jobs I wanted I missed because it was up for 24 hours. Like I was like, all right, I'll get to it the next day. Cause I was just busy with something. Then the next day, like I, it was art gone because the position, like all the applications have been in. Dang. It's almost like they're trying to keep, uh, keep these roles like a secret. It's like, Oh, we'll put it up for like two seconds and then get all these applicants and just take it down. It's just like a, 
catch and grab, which I had no idea of. But I mean, I guess it's kind of what you get with, you know, working with the government on that aspect. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, they're not trying to keep it a secret per se, because you can sign up for an email list and, you, you know, you get the, the job posting sent right to your email. And then okay, and so, yeah, like they're not hiding it from you. It's just the way the system works for them to keep it like as they deem like fair because they're hiring for a certain amount of positions. And then like, I think they want like a certain ratio or percentage of like the number of positions to fill it. So like, say it's a ratio of like, they're hiring for four positions. They're going to open the job to say a hundred people. And this is numbers I'm just making up off the top of my head. So then if they're going to hire for eight people, they'll have it be open to like 200 people. And so, but yeah, I mean, the methodology behind it, I don't really know much about, but it's, you know, it's the system you got. So if you got to play the game, <laughs> you want to win, you yeah, got to play. No, <laughs> that, that makes a ton of sense. It's, I mean, it's definitely not like applying for, you know, concessionaires work in the parks where it's, you know, you go to the website and just filter through the jobs that you're looking for or seems fit and then applying can most likely hear something back, which uh, I talked to Joe about this too. Like a lot of people just, um, a lot of people don't even realize that working in a national park is an option, like yeah. despite um, them like going to a park and like seeing all these people working here. Um so yeah, it's it's kind of funny how like a lot of people just don't realize that they have this option to apply and work in a park and they just kind of go there without thinking about it. But uh but yeah, going back to um your time as a jammer because um that's one of the biggest aspects of working in Glacier National Park is just um the going to the Sun Road is obviously the main attraction aside from the mountains and um anything you can explore in that park but i mean the amount of like training and information that is thrown at you guys like during your training for preparation for uh touring season is just like astounding um can you just kind of like go through as far as like what elements of training training to be a jammer is like and like what kind of information is like thrown at you during that time yeah so training to be a red bus driver or a jammer it's pretty hectic and you have to learn all the information basically crash course in like three weeks time so and that includes getting if you don't already have a commercial driver's license you have to get your cdl which means you have to take the written test which means you have to study for the written test so you can pass that and after that you have your road test which includes a full vehicle inspection and so you have to inspect and know all the different parts of the vehicle under the hood, under the bottoms, everywhere around. And then you have to be, there's extra road regulations because you're a commercial driver with passengers on board. So you got to pass your road test. And then while all of that is going on and you're getting practice driving the red buses, you're learning your commentary for the tour because as a red bus driver, you can give eight to nine hour tours. And so, and they want you to talk for about roughly 75% of your tour. And so you're looking at five, six hours of talking there. And so, and you don't just want to be repeating yourself the whole time. So you have to learn the commentary to fill that five to six hours over a 
vast variety of topics, just like history of the National Park Service, history of Glacier National Park specifically, the flora and fauna, you know, the history of the railway, because that's how people for really first came out to the area, besides the natives that are already here, how white men first came out to the area was by the train. Um, and like geology and so many topics. And then you got to learn that because once your three weeks of training is up, you're given a tour and you don't want to look like an idiot in front of all your guests. So <laughs> you'll train for what was probably eight, nine, 10 hours, five days a week. And then after that training, you'll typically eat dinner and then you're basically studying your manual, which is, I don't know, a three inch, four inch thick textbook basically. And you're yeah. studying that basically till you go to bed and that's it. I like, I was a little lucky that I had already lived in Glacier for a season before I took the red bus driving job, but there's people that have taken that job and some of them have visited the park, but I think some of them have never actually even visited Glacier and you're just coming and learning and you're talking about all these abstract things like Logan Pass, which, you know, is the most, one of the most popular spots in the park. But when you arrive that early in the season, the road's not open. So you're trying to learn about Logan Pass, but you've never been there, but you're expected to give a tour there. And so it's a very like weird situation where you're trying to learn about all these places that you still haven't been. And part of the training is they do take you to those places. But yeah, they, it really is uh, a lot of hard work those three weeks to really crash course and get yourself ready to be a full-fledged tour guide. Yeah. And like, not only just the training is the hard, is like hard work, but uh, man, seeing like the days that you guys put in, like, you know, um, so, sometimes, uh, the, like the schedule frequently, I think you guys, from what I know, you guys alternate back and forth between like the, uh, the Alpine tours and gave like two tours a day mm-hmm. all within four hours at a shot for each tour. So like your, I mean, your average days were close to what, 10, 12 hours a day. Yeah. A lot, there are a lot of 12 hour days. Um, cause when you do those Alpines, that's two, four hour tours, but then you have a hour lunch break in the middle. That's really more of a working lunch break. Cause you got to make sure you get your bus cleaned for the next tour. And you know, if you had folks wearing sunscreen or like kids by a window, they're getting their fingerprints all over them. So you got to clean that off because you know, first impressions are everything and you're working for tips. So you need that bus to be clean when you show up for your next right. tour. So you're like, munching down a sandwich and like scrubbing the floor and getting the bus ready. And then, yeah. So you, that's like nine hours of work right there. Just the tours, your lunch break and another tour. But then in the morning you got to do your pre-trip inspection. You got to do any la- like last minute cleaning on the bus. And then in the evening time you do have to wash the bus, get it ready for the next day of tour. Um, and so, yeah, it's a lot of 10 to 12 hour days and, if I'd work a five day week, I was easily in the 50 to 60 hour range. Um, a lot of times like closer to 50, 55, but there's definitely some weeks I put in 60 hours. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, it was always just interesting, like seeing you guys, like being working at the front desk myself and like right next to the concierge desk at the, uh, many glacier hotel. Um, like just seeing all the jammers come in, like, just like sometimes between seven and eight o'clock after just getting done like their entire day and cleaning their bus. And sometimes like they even had like they even missed dinner, which was kind of unfortunate, but I think I know at the front desk, we tried our best to coordinate and get them a good meal. Um, 
because like you guys definitely deserve it. But yeah, you mentioned like the uh, the tip aspect, and that's one thing like that comes along like with being a jammer, a red bus driver is like you guys definitely like you make a solid amount of money within a summer. Yeah, no, it's I mean being a tour guide is a lucrative job. It's really nice, um, but. Yeah, it's. I'll be interested to see how that plays out this summer, um, with how the economy is going to be after this whole thing, and how many people actually do come out and take tours. Because I don't know if people are going to be keen if they're visiting the park to jump into a tour bus with a bunch of strangers that could be from somewhere else in the country. And so the the jammers, I think, will probably take a hit this season. It won't be not such a nice season for the red bus drivers. But yeah, like it's, you know, it, it was hard work, but you did make a good amount of money as a tour guide in the park. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a great point. It's, um, I mean, any aspect of, you know, the tourism and stuff like that, as we discussed, is just going to be, going to be hit. Um, I think I know this year, at least on the, the east side in St. Mary, which is uh, for those who don't know what we're talking about or haven't been there. St. Mary is just basically like a really small hub of some sorts that is at the end of the, um, not the end, but it's one of the entrances into the going to the sun road on the east side. And it's about 20 miles away from uh, the many glacier hotel or into the entrance of the uh, many glacier Valley. And like, yeah, from what I know, the jammers, the red bus drivers will be staying in cabins this year in St. Mary, they'll be at the uh, Glacier Trailhead. I think it's that campground there. Um, so they'll be staying in there. That'll be their their living quarters this year. Yeah, and so that's because of the construction going on with the Many Glacier Road. They're saying it's going to be a minimum yep. hour delay each way um, because the, I mean, which the road needs it. That road needs desperate work. So yes, it does. You know, it'll it'll be fine, but. Yeah, so that's kind of switching things up where they're operating tours out of St. Mary instead of the Many Glacier Valley now. And yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, again, how all that housing works out is I, I'm not sure if the concessions will follow the same example of the park service with only putting one person in each housing unit. But, you know, if, if they follow suit, then it's going to be tougher for them to house people, um, I think. I mean, everyone across the board is scrambling park service and concessions just because no one was prepared for a global pandemic to happen rolling into the summer. And so we're all just kind of trying to figure it out as we go along. Yeah, I I know for a fact. I I know just from like the people that I've worked with in Glacier, I'm I'm positive that they're just doing the best they can to make it what they can for the summer. It's just not it's not going to be the same, obviously, but. Um, I have faith that it's at least going to be made out to be the best as it can, despite, you know, any underlying circumstances. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's always good to hear about like the jammer experiences. Um, like I know, I mean, quite a few of my friends, first friends in Glacier were jammers and like just connecting with them and, you know, hearing their stories was always, um, always a trip, um, crazy, good, happy, sad. It was always, um, something that like at the end of the day you would just hear and then walk into the dorm and uh just load out like what happened during the day so yeah it was always fun and you guys definitely put in a lot of work and give 
the tourists, like just a phenomenal experience. So definitely kudos to you guys for putting in that time and, um, you know, giving that effort to make people's experiences so awesome. But um, I kind of want to circle back to um, like how you got into like the climbing and uh, mount your mountain experience and also some of your ski experience. Um, you kind of touched on how that started and like where that came from, but um, overall, like how, how long have you been um, into like your climbing game and, you know, have been like searching through and um, making it a point to go out amongst the peaks and get those experiences and uh, get on top of those. Yeah. So I've actually been skiing way longer than I've been climbing. Um, okay. So like, I'm actually like primarily a skier climber second for sure. Um, so like I've been, ski- I started skiing back in middle school and have been skiing ever since. Didn't ski a ton in college cause I was in Ohio, but whenever I went back home on breaks, I skied and then I, visited my brother when he was working out in Telluride on one of my spring breaks to go ski there. Um, and then like glacier is really where I cut my teeth though. Um, in the mountains as a mountaineer, um, and starting to get into climbing a little bit. Uh, like before that, like, you know, the, I had a little bit of winter experience. Like I climbed Mount Washington in New Hampshire in January, um, which that mountain can get some pretty nasty weather. Um, the day I was up there was like negative 20 wind chill. And so, yeah, like, so like did a little bit back East, but like it was really like Montana and Glacier specifically is where I've really like stepped into the shoes of where I'm at now. Um, as far as like technical rock climbing, um, only been doing that for about two, two and a half years. Um, so I like, I'm actually like very new and would still consider myself a novice to that. Um, of due to other skills, I've been able to apply some of those skills into the mountains of glacier and have been able to get some like more technical peaks in there, but I'm still very much a novice in regards to climbing. Um, I started more peak bagging like my first and second summer in the park. So back, 2016 2017 and you know like I've always been trying to progress trying to do bigger mountains like tougher mountains and so that was kind of my motivation for picking up rock climbing was so I could do big mountains um but yeah I mean glaciers where I learned northwest Montana the rock's not the best out here uh, it's can be kind of loose but it's you know mm-hmm. it's where I learned to love it it's I consider it my home for rock climbing at least. Um, but yeah, def- definitely a skier first and foremost. Um, my, my, that's my favorite activity to do in the mountains is skiing hundred percent. But yeah. And you're also, you know, you're right by, um, Oh God, why is the name? Oh, uh, whitefish. 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 I don't know why that blank. Yeah. You're right next to the whitefish uh, ski resort, which is, uh, for what I hear is a phenomenal place to be. Yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, Whitefish is a great mountain. Um, I didn't have a season, a pass there this year, but I did last season, but I had to get new, new tires on my car last fall. So that ate all my funds for a pass. And so I was this season, I was primarily just in the back country and then I would skin up the resort and ski back down. But I rode lifts only a couple of times throughout the year. But Whitefish itself is a great town. Um, a lot of fun. There's a lot of good local music here. And, you know, it's overall just 
a blast of a place to live and the community here, everyone just, you know, loves being outside and gets after it. Then, you know, hangs out and has a great time at night in town. So it's, you know, ideal if you like being out in the mountains. Yeah. That's one thing I will say is just, and Whitefish is a really cool community. Although I don't have any experience with like the actual skiing community there, but as a town itself, I mean, yeah, like you said, great live music, uh, great shops, uh, great for tourists. Um, great food there, too. I've had quite a few good meals in Whitefish. Yeah. The, um, the restaurants here are really good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, oh, yeah, you touched on something, too, about how the rock in Glacier is not the best. And from for those who have worked there, you we pretty much know why. Um I know that I don't know the technical name for the rock because like I said, it's not the information that's implanted in my head, but, um, but yeah, although the mountains there are good for climbing, they're also bad in some aspects just because of that loose and that brittle rock that can be, you know, dangerous. And if you don't know what you're doing, like that's, that's even worse. But, um, the, I think before, um, I left last summer, I heard something about, I think it was Mount St. Nichols. You guys were trying to, to get up. Um, so we never made an actual attempt on St. Nick. It was, so my main climbing partner last summer was, uh, my friend Kyra. She's an insane, like she's really badass in the mountains, way better climber than I am. Um, and so there's, you know, five, what people call quote unquote technical peaks in Glacier National Park. And we're basically halfway through the season. We realized we could knock out all five in the season if, you know, weather windows and everything lined up because very early in the season, we did Blackfoot, which is technical because of its glacier travel. It's got a big crevasse you've got to cross. We managed to hit it early enough that it was filled in, but you know, you're, you're still roped up. You're on a glacier. So we did that. And then I knocked out, Wilbur and split on back-to-back days one weekend and that's when I was like oh I only have two left so then we managed to get Walton and then St. Nick was the last one and Kyra and I we had two more weekends left in the summer as we were rolling more into the fall season where we both would have three days off that would overlap and both those weekends the weather just it was raining in the mountains and didn't line up for us. So we, we never even put boots to the ground on that one. Um, but, you know, nevertheless, it was still a great summer. Um, but yeah, we were hoping to knock that out, but weren't able to quite get it. Oh man, that's, yeah, that's unfortunate. I know, I know all about that. That's just the one thing you got to give and take with the, it's the weather out there. If you want to get amongst these peaks, you know, obviously if you're, Doing that mountaineering in general, that's one of your key factors you got to pay attention to. But uh, I know me, Joe, and Jonathan, we attempt, we're going to attempt Cleveland for my birthday um, via the Stony Indian route. And, yeah, it just – that weather just did not want to let up. It was just rain, miserable, and we ended up packing out a day early and just hiking out the 19 miles from Stony Indian Campground to get out of there just because it was, it was just miserable. Um so that's my that's my white whale from last year that I'll have to put on a list and get back there and do someday. But um, what are what are some of your top um, your favorite? If you had to get like a top five um, peaks that you've um, summited in, in the park, 
Um, what would be your uh, your top five? Uh, that's a tough list. Um, <laughs> I mean, Walton's probably my favorite so far. That was a really awesome climb. Uh, you traverse Harrison Glacier, which is the biggest glacier in the park. And then it's just got this really fun scramble up to the ridge. Um, and so that was a great one. Um, oh, what else? Blackfoot was a really fun one. I got to ski basically from the summit of Blackfoot. I, we had to drop like skis 50 feet from the top because of rocks. But, you know, we, we skied off Blackfoot. That was a really fun trip. Um, trying to think of what else. I mean, Wilbur's up there. Iceberg Peak was a good one. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I'll leave it at that. And it's, I don't know. I, I have climbs being favorites for different reasons, but yeah, I don't know. That's fair. Anything just like when I, if I'm on snow or traversing a glacier that puts it up there just cause I love being on snow. Um, but yeah, or even anything that has like a lot of just like steep scrambling that isn't even necessarily technical. That can be a lot of fun. Uh, we, I did get out on Caper Peak, which is a really fun climb because it's a, it's a mountain that there's no route information on. So it's just a day oh. where, you know, went out and just kind of looked the mountain pieced it together. You know, it wasn't that difficult. There's like a couple of tricky moves we had to pull. And yeah, it was ultimately a fun day. And of course, on the way down, we found an easier way around, which we had gone. But that's, you know, just how it goes. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's um that's kind of the advantage um or one of the blessings about Glacier. And I'm sure it's like this in many other, you know, parks and like other mountainous um parks that like people have access to to uh to summit and climb up. But uh I mean you have in sale that's for sale in all the um the camp stores and other shops or the other concessionaires, the uh, climber's guide to glacier, which is um, you know, what us employees consider the Bible for us climbers um, that practically has great route information as far as how to get up some of the most popular and like most um, most probably most of the peaks in the park itself. Um, I've used that book uh, quite a bit and um, I'd have to say, at least for me, like some of my top favorites mountains uh, that I've been up um, going to the sun was a really fun climb. That one was uh, phenomenal because that was actually the first one I got to, um, lead the route on that I figured out myself. Um, so that was kind of sentimental for me. Nice. Um, Reynolds, that's, uh, right there at the top of Logan pass. Um, <laughs> I, I still have stuff. Uh, um, really? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it is real. it's a really common and very like, if you're, if you're a good hiker with a good pace and you know what you're doing, like I made it up, I made it up in two hours and the same coming back. Like, so Really, to like, uh, as far as route finding, I think it's one of the easier peaks, even though the first time I tried leading people up there, I I, I did not know where I was going and we had to turn back. But, um, the second time I got up there by myself, I mean, once I saw it, like, it's definitely one of the more easy peaks to get up, which is the advantage. Um, Triple Divide was a great hike, simple to get to in a way, except for that initial, um, scree field up to the top, and you had to like climb up the rock chute to get up to the uh basically the saddle to walk up to the summit itself that was um interesting going down that was 
kind of sketchy, but uh, um, yeah, triple divide yeah. going to the sun. That, that Mount Gould. Yeah, I, I still haven't done Gould either. That's one I've been wanting to do, but never got around to it. Yeah, that one took me took me about four tries to get up. Uh, first time it was with Max Bates and Matt Edwards, and um, we got caught in a lightning storm, and that's a whole other story for a different episode. Yeah, well, um, I remember that because I think one of you invited me on that trip or like I talked to you about it and I saw the weather forecast for that. And I was like, yeah, like I'm not like, it's like, I'm someone who a lot of the times is like, you know, you don't know if you go, even if it's going to be crap, like go out and figure it out. But the forecast for that day, I was like, yo guys, like it's not going to be good. And, and like, I can't remember. Yeah. I know it have been you. I was talking to you. Maybe it was like Max or something. I don't know. But I was just like, yeah, like I'm like, I'm good. I'm going to sit home. And then, yeah, I heard the story <laughs> of you guys. And I was like, oh, like, big surprise there. Which like, is actually really funny. Cause I was in a similar area this summer. Um, during, uh, we were doing a search for a missing person, um, like right up near Haystack. And like, we had a bunch of storms roll through. So we were just hunkering under an overhang. Um, just sitting on all kinds of goat droppings just because it was covered and just, yeah, I was like waiting out the storm. Oh man, that's, uh, yeah, I think I remember you telling me about one of the, uh, the recoveries you had to do this summer. I don't think I got to hear it in detail, but, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's an unfortunate part of like your, you know, your park service, um, your roles like that, that stuff happens and the, the park service employees, and including like the uh like the rangers themselves they are they're the ones that are out there have to go out there and do that recovery and uh search and rescue which is really unfortunate it happens every year unfortunately but uh but yeah that's just a part of you know some people just don't either get caught in tricky situations either on purpose or on accident and it's just an unfortunate part of you know the parks i think i think that's a big thing in in any park um it happened in the grand canyon quite a bit um I can think of quite a few other places that the same thing happens. So I think it's just a common, common thing that goes amongst or is shared between all the parks. Yeah. I mean, there's uh, emergency services are a major thing in parks. Um, I, I never did any body recoveries um, just to oh, okay. be clear of that. Yeah. I've, I haven't had to do that. Um, I mean, I was a part of searches for missing people. I responded to other medical emergencies. Um, we like, I, we had people that later passed away um, after our care at when they when they got transferred to the hospital. But yeah, I all like the really big search and rescues or big accidents kind of happened like on my off days when I was out of all range of contact. Um, so like one of them, actually the big one, when the car went forty feet off the road last summer. I was, oh yeah, I was actually, yeah, I remember that. I was on a red bus tour with my mom because it was her first time to Glacier. So I was like, all right, we're gonna take you on a red bus tour, and we were actually stuck in the traffic like miles behind where the accident happened, and we were just sitting on the road for over an hour, and you know, like I, like, I had a feeling what was going on just because I know how things operate in the park, and from where we were, we could eventually hear the helicopter coming in. Um, all the people in that accident survived, which was uh, really nice because that rescue, they had to, you know, 
bring them back up to the road with grow piling systems and everything. But you know, they, they did a great job of it, but yeah, it is a reality. Um, and the majority of the accidents that happen in the park, y'all, you don't eat, like people don't even hear about. Um, and so like, and you could be talking to a ranger and earlier in the day, they could have been responding to a medical emergency and like been super stressed working with someone who's like seriously injured or has like, you know, medical problem going on. Like, people do have heart attacks in the national parks and the rangers are the ones mm-hmm. running to that. And so, yeah, you, you never know um, what the ranger dealt with prior to within the day that you talked to. Um, but yeah, it's the emergency medical services are needed in the park and yeah, you know, they, you, your rangers are the ones that are going to be there to help out. Yeah, major kudos to them. Every range that I've talked to on the uh, the east side, because I've gotten the pleasure to chat with them, and plus working at the front desk if a situation happens, they kind of come in to inquire about it if and like inquires more information that we might know. But um, they do a fantastic job over there throughout the park in general. Um, and yeah, you just you just never know like what they've what they've gone through. I've heard some stories um, from like from rangers or just kind of like you know, what, what gets passed around, but yeah, major kudos to them. And then, I mean, aside from that too, um, kind of the other thing that you've witnessed in the parks, um, during your time is the, um, the wildfires over on the West side Yeah, that happened, uh, two years in a row. Yeah. So it was, yeah, 2017, 2018 were both really bad wildfire years for Glacier National Park. And, both of those seasons I was actually evacuated um, from my housing due to fires. One was a slow evacuation where we, it was due to the smoke levels. The smoke was so thick. We were evacuating, not because we we're the fire was at risk for pitting us, but the smoke levels were so terrible. So that one wasn't bad. Cause it was like, all right, you have like a day and a half to pack up all your things. No big deal. Like we're just going to go live somewhere else. I got transferred over to many glacier. And so, you know, not a big deal. 2018, which was the second bad fire season, that was a little more crazy because I remember the fire broke out one night. Probably if you're at the Lake McDonald Lodge and look west across Lake McDonald, it was right on Howe Ridge there. And it's just a small fire. Then we woke up in the morning and the fire looked like it hadn't even grown in size. It was real small. And so it's like, okay, cool. So I had to give a red bus tour that day. And I think it was a crown, which is the all day one that goes over to many glacier and then back over. And I think I did leave my spare car key with someone. And I was like, Hey, like if this fire blows up and you have to leave, like get my car out, I'll find you later. And so I got back from that tour and the fire had blown, blown up. Like if I have a video somewhere, but the smoke looked like the mushroom cloud from an atomic bomb, which is going up and the fire is spreading and they're actually having embers from the fire blown from beside Lake McDonald all the way over to the avalanche campground. And so that's when they, wow. start, that's when they decided to start evacuating things because the fire was about to jump or it looked like it was, had the potential to jump across the lake. And so they evacuated Avalanche first, then they came down to Lake McDonald Lodge and said, hey, because of the fire, like it's an immediate evacuation. You guys got to get out. 
So we had about 30 to 45 minutes to pack up as many belongings as we could into our cars. And then we had to leave. And so we left and then we evacuated to an area where the company we worked for had some property. And at that point I actually was sleeping in one of the red buses for about a week or so. And yeah, I would just roll up my sleeping bag on one of the seats, sleep in the red bus, wake up in the morning, put my sleeping bag away back into my car, start like eat some food, put on my uniform, start the red bus and yeah, get ready for tour that day. And so, you know, it went back to a little bit at the older times when the drivers used to just live out of the buses. Um, that's no longer what happens, but it, you know, it was a little bit like that. And the seats were honestly pretty comfortable. So wasn't that bad but yeah yeah then from there after that like week week and a half then i got transferred over to the east side of the park uh in the many glacier valley and finished up the season operating tours out of there yeah that was definitely uh because that was i know 2018 that was my my first summer there and um that all happened it just obviously the smoke carried over to the east side and we had you know guests like cancel and you know, leave early or just not come out at all because of that. And yeah, it was, um, it was really scary. Um, as far as the West side, I did see a couple of videos from some other friends that were over there and just how close that was. That's, uh, it's crazy that the Lake McDonald Lodge itself, like, you know, I'm just glad it didn't get, um, get caught in the fire or anything like that. I know there were some surrounding buildings, um, kind of further down the edge of the lake that, um, didn't make it. Um, they kind of, I don't know what buildings exactly. I think there was a, like a small boathouse or something. Yeah. So that, that was across the lake that the buildings burned and it was okay. a private inholder cabin. So in, including what was, I believe one of the oldest buildings in the park, um, called Kelly's camp. And it was across, it was built in the 1800s. And what the private inholders or the national parks are is it's folks whose families owned that land before the national park was established then when the park was established their private land fell within the park and they're allowed to keep that land but then it's just passed down through the generations of the family and in most parks they aren't even allowed to sell to people outside the family it's it stays in the family or it goes back to the park service glacier is actually a little different in the way they wrote the contracts where they can actually sell it outside the family but nevertheless, like that, that camp specifically, yeah, that had been passed down through the generations since the late 1800s and it burned in the fire. Um, so really unfortunate. And to give people an idea of how intense this fire was, the flames were about 30 to 40 feet high and standing on the shore of Lake McDonald at the lodge, the opposite shore is probably oh, a mile across the lake, maybe a little less. We could feel the heat of the flames all the way across the lake, about a mile away. Yeah. And so that's how hot that fire was burning. Yeah, that's uh man, that was a, I mean, we didn't have anything uh, go on in 2019 except for some fires up in Alberta, mm-hmm. uh, but in the park itself, like we didn't have anything go on. So that was fortunate because we definitely needed a break from that. But uh, um, I actually didn't know that um, there is like a, a circumstance for those um, private property uh, houses along the lake to be sold outside the family. I just automatically assumed that like they had to be grandfathered in. Um, I can only imagine like what those would 
sell for and like the kind of stipulations that are interweaved throughout like selling that house or selling one of those properties yeah um yeah i i don't know what the all the regulations of that are uh the the joke i used to be on tour was used to make on tour was that it's like having the federal government as your homeowners association because there's all sorts of regulations that could go along with having a property in a national park right but nevertheless you you have a home in one of the most beautiful places on in the country debatably in the planet yeah absolutely absolutely um well paul as we kind of finish up here um i kind of just want to give this chance you know if you if you have anything like that you want to share specifically um I have written down here, like, if you have some, some stories, like, happy, sad, funny, crazy stories from either any of your experiences or time in the park that you want to share, or just something that's um, kind of personal to you about um, Glacier or your park experiences as a whole that you kind of want to let the people know about. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, I, I can go probably a thousand different directions with that. Um, I th- Thing. Well, one of the ones I'll share, I jotted down a whole bunch of different stories I could share. Um, I'll share one of the ones from back when I was driving red buses. And then maybe uh, I'll probably share a climbing story after that. But uh, there is, yeah, I perfect. think, so you can get a little bit of both. But from driving red buses, there is, I can't remember if it was 2017 or 2018, but it's one of the seasons, you know, when you're a tour guide in the park, and you're driving around the park all day every day you're bound to see some crazy things you're bound to see a lot of wildlife a lot of people doing weird things but this particular day i was given a tour uh, the crown of the continent from lake mcdonald all the way over to many glacier and we we're going through i believe it's a rising sun area of the park over about yeah by two dog flats and like I'm driving out of the corner of my eye, I saw a bear in, you know, like the field prairie beside. I was like, oh, folks, like off to your right, like, look, there's a bear, like, check it out. Like, there's no pullout, so I can't stop the bus for them to look at. And then like, I got a better look at it, and I realized it was two bears that were having sex, just like in plain <laughs> view of the road, like right there, just like, like going after it and i was like oh my god i was like and folks like to your right you see mother nature at its finest <laughs> but yeah you know like you when you work and live in these parks you do get to see some crazy things like you know two bears in love working on making next year's cub and so believe it or not you get to yeah. see nature at its wildest moment yeah that's um i know jonathan he has a he saw something similar with uh, two black bears in his first summer as a jammer. And I thoroughly enjoyed that story and how he handled it with his, uh, his guests. Yeah. That, that was, it probably was 2018. Then it was probably the same two black bears that I saw. Um, okay. Like well, one was darker colored and one was like a lighter cinnamon color. And right. so like, of course all the guests were confused for like, like, wait, it's like, is that a grizzly bear and a black bear? And it's like, no, no, no. <laughs> it's two black bears. Yeah, yeah. Like they, they as far as I know, there's no interspecies breeding like that. But, you know, I'm not going to reel it off from Mother Nature. I'll let her decide. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. To my knowledge, it hasn't happened, but I'm not, like, I'm not going <laughs> to write it off. <laughs> um, yeah. And then I guess 
Yeah, kind of the climbing story I have. This is probably my favorite climbing story to tell. Um, a bunch of my friends around here have probably heard it. Um, and actually, I do have a blog post up on it. Um, it was from Climbing Split Mountain. But, and it'll go more into detail there. But basically, like my climbing partner, Kyra, and I were going to climb Split Mountain and technical climb. Um, so, I, bringing ropes some people have climbed it without ropes which it's doable like the actual technical aspect is like pretty easy climbing uh it's just like your exposure that if you take a fall you're falling like over 2,000 feet and so like you know you bring up rope protect it and so we were kind of like really looking to cut our teeth more in the alpine so we didn't do a whole lot of like research or asking people who had been on the route before for information and so we just read, you know, the guide got a general gist and then, you know, we set off and went for it. And, you know, our, and like, we were both experienced in the park and so we're fine. So we get up and split mountain is the summit block is split by a cleft in the middle and to climb it, you go up into the cleft and then you get on the North summit as the true summit. And so we were going up and we just, we got off route by just a little. We were almost going up into the main cleft, but then we, what we later found out is we took a wrong turn and got kind of around the south side and we were in like a sub cleft that was there. And so we were looking at it and like it wasn't like what we were looking at was not matching the description of the climbing we'd heard. Like it's, I think the true route is like 5 4. This was looking a lot more difficult, but then we saw a nut that was left behind in the rock wall there, which is a piece of metal. People wedge into the crack of a cliff wall that if they fall, that piece of metal catches in the cliff and it prevents you from falling. And so we're like, well, like, I guess this much be it. But the climbing was supposed to be so easy. We didn't even bring climbing shoes because you can just climb it in trail runners, mountain boots, whatever you bring along. So Kyra's in trail runners. I was in approach shoes. And so at this point, I couldn't lead any trad routes, which is when you place your own gear. So Kyra's going to lead. And, like, you know, we're getting ready. We decided we're – gonna give it a go despite not being 100% sure if it was the route and as we're gearing up I just hear her go I think I'm gonna climb this barefoot okay. I was like <laughs> I was like uh and like in my head I was like okay like that's kind of crazy but she's a way better climber than me I trust her and so just like to give her that mental double check I was like like are you sure like I was like we don't have to climb this and then she's like no no like I'll do it. I'll go for it. And then, so she let it and she climbed it. No issue. It probably went at like five, seven, five, eight climbing. And she did the whole thing barefoot and like blew my mind. Then we, we got up and it was this cool route that meandered into this roof. Then you go up through a hole in the roof and we get to the top. And I just had like this sinking pit in my stomach. I was like, we are on the wrong side of the summit. And because the South Summit, it's like, I think it's only like five, 10 feet shorter than the North one. And sure enough, I look, you can see the Summit Cairn, but <laughs> between us and the Summit Cairn was a giant drop. And 
which that drop was the actual cleft that we were supposed to have been in. So we actually climbed like a way hard, not a way harder, but a harder route than what we were originally intending. So then we just rappelled down and then we climbed the tree summit and it ended up like summiting both by accident. Um, But yeah, no, I I love telling that story because it just shows like how much of a badass Kyrie is. And it just like blew my mind just like watching it. It's so great. <laughs> oh man, barefoot on I can't imagine barefoot on those rocks at all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's um yeah, kudos to her for um for doing that. That's uh that's a feat in itself. And like yeah, those those things happen too. Like those those false summits are like you don't get to where you're going or you can't like, you know, you make a wrong wrong turn, wrong judgment and either you can still get up that that way it's just 10 times more difficult or like you just kind of veer off the path completely and I, i've been to that a couple of times before definitely but um but yeah that is just yeah great stories thanks for sharing those man yeah no no worries i mean uh, one of the things i or one of the not rules i guess Policy is a bad word too, but I, they're like mottos I kind of use that I can't remember where I heard it, but basically it's just like go till it doesn't make sense anymore. And so like, and like, you know, like applying that to the mountains, it's like, all right, like looking at this, like, are we comfortable climbing this? Does it make sense to climb it in the fashion? It's like, okay, like, yes. Like, although doing it barefoot is a little weird. I was like, if like Kyra felt confident with it. And so I was like, okay, like, then let's go. It, it makes sense. Like, let's do it. But there's, you know, there's plenty of times where it hasn't made sense. And, you know, you kind of tuck tail and run um, yeah. in the circumstances, whether that's, you know, your own route finding or you just get in way, way over your head and realize it and, you know, get out before things get really bad or the weather comes in. But yeah. Yeah, man. Absolutely. And, um, you mentioned your blog too. Are you still posting to that uh, pretty frequently or trying to? Um, so my blogs, it's, I don't think it's ever going to be like a very frequent thing. It's kind of whenever I feel like writing. Um, I have no plans to like update it regularly. I think I have like a few posts up on it. I started it like in the fall, um, but it, you can find it at towingthelineblog.weebly.com. Um, and it's just, you know, some of my musings on, in the mountains and whatnot i just put up a post about a week ago just kind of an update on the ski season so far that like led up to the pandemic when we started dialing things way back uh yeah it's it, it won't be a super consistent thing but whenever i feel like writing about something it'll go up yeah I'll, yeah that's, that's perfectly fair thanks for for sharing that um definitely whoever's listening if you can go over and check that out if you're interested in hearing some uh, some climbing or just some some good stories by a guy that's been in the park and in, in Glacier National Park and has some experience in different things definitely recommend going and checking that out but um but yeah Paul I think we've uh, we've reached the end of it here um I can't thank you enough for jumping on with me um I'll let you know when the episode goes up when I plan on having it go up but uh it was definitely great to hear from you man you're definitely one of the uh, the people that I've met that um like to hear like your stories and just like you're you're an interesting guy i, I don't think i've ever heard <laughs> someone mention themselves in the third person or talk about themselves in third person uh quite a, as bit as you but uh <laughs> yeah man <laughs> um through the mutual friends that we've met and 
just you know you're part of like the whole experience of glacier for me so for that i thank you and um yeah i hope you have a great rest of your day i wish you best of luck this summer uh, hopefully you get to go back and um still experience the park and the park service life um I, it's, it's a bummer to hear that you know you kind of have to resort to your car despite like the given situation but uh knowing you like you're uh you thrive you survive and um, I just wish you the best of luck, man. Yeah, no, yeah, I appreciate it. I mean, yeah, it'll be what it is. I mean, you know, it's life circumstances put you in a car. It's like, all right, let's roll with it. Like, so yeah, we'll we'll see what the summer holds. No one knows at this point, but yeah, definitely appreciate it. And yeah, thanks for having me on. You know, it's been fun always getting catch up, tell stories. I, I always love just listening to stories and telling stories. So. Yeah, it's it's always good to just sit down and chat and you know find yourself back out here at some point. Let me know and be sure to catch up. Yeah, I'm uh hopefully depending on what I have planned for the summer, I was kind of hoping to shoot over there for a couple of days, like an extend the weekend. So if I'm up there, um, I plan on letting quite a few people know that I'm up there, so I can kind of meet up at least with you. Right on, super cool. Awesome, man. Well, Paul, thanks again, and enjoy the rest of your day, man. Yeah, you too, Dalton. Take care. All right, everyone. So that was my buddy, Paul. Um, I can't thank him enough for jumping in on this episode with me and just sharing his awesome experiences Um, because I know he's had some great ones, and I know um, he's got plenty more to tell, and let's just wish him luck in his endeavors into um, yet another season in Glacier into the park service role or park service employee. Let's hope uh, the best for him. And I wish him the best of luck. And um, so that's all that I have for episode three. Um, Thank you all again for joining in and for taking the time to listen to this episode. Um, Next week on episode four, I have my good buddy, Eli. And Eli is a really special guy to me. He Um, And I shared a musical passion in Glacier this past summer and we connect on a musical level and that's what we're going to be chatting about next week. So tune in next week for episode four with Eli and until then, I will see you next time on the Parkies podcast.